Now, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, a time we, we, we get the privilege to honor a soldiers who have given their life for our nation, for the freedoms we get to enjoy even right now. So check out this video about our fallen soldiers. It's so important to honor the fallen soldiers who have given their lives for our country and who have gave the ultimate sacrifice. Memorial Day is a day to, to reflect. Whether you personally know someone or not, these freedoms that we have are paid for by men and women that have fought honorably for this country. We live in such a blessed nation. Our nation has so much to offer. We should never take what we've been given for granted. Freedom uh, costs nothing for some people, but others it costs everything. We can all reach out to family and friends who have, have lost loved ones and, and just reassure them that they didn't give their life in vain. They gave it to protect our nation and for freedom. Find somebody. Thank them. Maybe that'll change your perspective on Memorial Day. Our ability to gather and worship like this is a part of what um, we remember this weekend because there are men and women who have given their lives so we'd have the freedoms that we enjoy in America. Over the last couple of months, I've had the opportunity to participate in two memorials for two World War II veterans. Uh, they were just a couple of weeks apart. The first was for a man named Dennis Hemsel, who who served in the U.S. Navy during World War II, 98 years old. Both of these men were 98 years old. And uh, Dennis had outlived most of his family, didn't have any relatives in town, and a couple of relatives he had that were kind of distant relatives couldn't make it in for his memorial because of COVID. But his neighbor and friend, uh, John Hicks, who is part of Calvary and a friend of mine, has helped kind of with the final details and the barrel preparations. And I asked John, you know, how many folks would probably be gathered at the graveside where they'd have a military honors uh, that would be presented uh, to the family. And he said he was going to be the only one as a neighbor and friend. And so I said I would go with him. And then uh, while we were there, there was the casket draped in the flag. And, um, of course, then the two soldiers from the Navy who took the flag and they began to fold it. And as they folded it, they folded it down into that triangle, as we just saw in the video a moment ago. And then they presented that to John, and I was the only other one there sitting next to John. And they presented that to him and uh, uh, to be given to uh, Dennis's family members. Very moving. And as I saw that flag I, uh, being given to, his, to John, I realized that there were so many more who didn't come home from World War II or even any of the other modern wars of uh, the last uh, 75 years. 
And uh, then there are those who gave their lives throughout uh, the last couple of centuries for our freedom, and that reminded me of that. And then just a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Jerry Butterworth, who was a part of the Calvary family, again at 98 years of age, uh, Marine veteran of World War II, uh, we had his graveside, and again, the casket draped with the American flag, and then to have those soldiers again fold that flag up and kneel down and present it to Shirley Ann, Jerry's wife, and to thank her and her family for her husband's service. Again, as I saw that flag being handed over, I thought of those who did not come home uh, from World War II and was reminded again of those who had given their lives so that we can enjoy the freedoms we enjoy every day. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful uh, for those who've done that. And I want to just stop and thank God for them, thank God for our country and the freedoms we have here. Uh, would you just bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for men and women who have served. Thank you for the service of Dennis and of Jerry. Uh, Lord, we know that um, they went through a lot in the war. Uh, there's some stories there. And um, yet there are others who did not come home. And as we remember those from even the wars of the last couple of decades that um, lost their lives and their family, there's family here who have suffered the loss of a loved one who served their country. And I pray, Lord, that there would be encouragement in those hearts. I pray that we wouldn't take for granted the freedoms we have as Americans. Thank you for those who have uh, given all that we might even be able to worship freely without threat today. Um, bless the service. Uh, bless our time of communion in a few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we conclude our series, Forward, Living and Loving Like Jesus in a Post-COVID World. Next week we'll begin a new series that will take us through the summer on the book of Daniel called Courageous Hope. We'll look at the character of Daniel and his journey through life and how we can learn courageous hope from him that will help us every day in our lives. I was thinking about um, how we would conclude this series as we, as we come out of COVID. What do we need to do? What do we need to think about? And, and the concept of reset or evaluation or doing a gut check to make sure if there have been some patterns in our lives that maybe need to be changed to get us where we need to be. Maybe those patterns were there before COVID. Maybe they emerged during COVID. But what do we need to do to make sure our hearts and lives are centered properly so we can move forward for Jesus in this world? And one of my kids sent me a, a story of a teacher in Richardson, Texas, who taught for 40 years PE at Prestonwood Elementary. This Dale, Dale Irby is his name. And uh, in his first year of teaching, he, uh, on picture day, you know, went and got his picture taken like the other staff and faculty and, and students. And then the next year, got his picture taken. And when the pictures came back, he and his wife realized he'd worn the same clothes those two years. <laughs> next year, he got his picture taken. They came back and realized he'd done it again. So then he decided, I'm going to wear the same clothes every year till I retire. So from 1972 to 2012, every year he wore the same outfit. And you can see that in this image of Dale Irby <laughs> over the years. As a matter of fact, in the first year, uh, 1972 to 1973, you see very little difference. But when you get to the last two years of 2011, 2012, you see he changed some, but not his clothes. As a matter of fact, he said he outgrew the clothes. And toward the end, he'd just take them in, squeeze them on, take them back off just so he could have that picture. He said several times over the years, his wife encouraged him to reset, do something different, but he decided to keep it going the same way. 
You know, in our walk with Christ, there's something about being consistent and faithful, but we're also supposed to be changing and being transformed and to become more like Jesus every day so we can live and love like Christ in our world. And maybe there are some things that you've fallen into, some patterns, behaviors, some habits, a way of thinking that needs to be jarred, needs to be reset, needs to be rethought. It's an opportunity today to do a gut check together of some important aspects of our lives as we live for Jesus in this world. So we're gonna talk about reset today. And if you wanna open your Bibles to Philippians chapter four, we're gonna look at just a couple of verses there and then we'll look at some other texts of scripture. But Philippians four, if you wanna go there in your Bibles on your mobile device to a Bible app. And today we're gonna see as we enter, as we re-enter life and adjust to our new normal after COVID, we need a spiritual reset to ensure others will see Jesus in and through us. We need to do a good gut check and make sure we've got our head on straight. We've got our perspective correct as we move forward because our world desperately needs to see people who have hope and know the Lord. The first area I want us to look at is our basic approach to life. Maybe you need a reset in your basic approach to life. I've shared this before, but this is a pattern that's so important to me. It's a pattern that the Apostle Paul shares with the church at Philippi on how to have happiness and joy and contentment and peace in life. And it's really three basic steps in how we approach life as a whole. The first thing is to think right, to think right. Paul concludes this letter to the church of Philippi. He he writes to them from jail, and he's trying to help them understand how to have joy. And so he gives this basic pattern to have peace and fulfillment in in your life. He says, first of all, think right. Look at Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think right. These kinds of qualities are good qualities. They are Christ-like qualities. These are biblical concepts, and our, our minds need to dwell on these kinds of things. Instead of the things of lust and greed and pride, that can fill our hearts and our minds. We need to think on the things that represent the, the mind of Christ. Paul would tell the church at Corinth that the, the battle for our lives is in our minds, in our thinking, how we see the world, the perspective we hold. Do we hold God's or something else? In Romans chapter 12 and verse two, we read, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice he says that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We take out the old way of thinking that is not the way of Christ, and we bring in the biblical worldview. We bring in how we're to live. We think the way Christ wants us to think, and as we think that way, then it leads to the second thing. When we think right, then we do right. We do right. That's the next step. If our thinking is biblical, then we make the decision to act on that in our behaviors, our relationships. Look at the next part of Philippians 4, 8, and 9, the first part of 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Paul says, do what I've taught you. Do what I've been an example of. This right kind of thinking now needs to be put into action and obedience to God's perspective, God's word. Act on it. James would put it this way in James 4, 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
If you've been thinking right, and God says, this is how you should live and act and behave, and then you don't do that, you have sinned. When we think right, we do right, then there is a result that comes, and it's found in the last part of verse 9 in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. We think right, we do right, and then look at how we are to feel right. Feel right is the result of thinking right and doing right. We feel right. It's a basic approach to life. Philippians 4, 9, the last part of it, uh, says this, and the God of peace will be with you. So you think on these things, you put into practice those things, and then when you do that, you think that way and you do that, then you will sense the whole peaceful, satisfying presence of God in your life. Jesus put it this way to his disciples in John 13, verse 17, in the upper room. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Notice, if you know these things, you do them, then you are happy and blessed. There's a pattern there. The God who made us and created us, who understands us, he has given us in his word, the written word of God, the Bible, his perspective on life. He came in human flesh. God the Son came in human flesh to show us that lived out in a life here on earth. The pattern is we think right and do right, then we'll feel right. But the opposite is true too. If you think wrong, then you're gonna do wrong and you're gonna feel wrong. You're gonna feel shame and guilt. Take Adam and Eve, for instance. God said, here's this beautiful garden, just the one tree, don't eat of it. They walk with God in the cool of the day. Things are going great. They're enjoying the whole garden. And Satan comes along and he says, you see that tree over there? God is holding back on you. And he feeds them a lie. He gets them to think wrong. They begin to believe that they'll be like God. And, and that tree, oh, he's holding back on us. And they begin to think wrong. And then what do they do? They eat of the tree. They disobey God. So they think wrong and do wrong, then what's the evidence that they would feel wrong? Well, they hid from each other, put clothes on, they hid from God, they hid in the bushes when he came in the cool of the day to walk with them as he did every day. You see, when we think wrong, we'll do wrong, and then we'll feel wrong. That's God's pattern. And the world just says, well, if you feel this way, change your thinking, change your belief system. But the God who made us and designed us says, if you live according to the way I designed you and created you and you follow my instruction, you will have peace, you will have joy. And that's what Paul was sharing with them. And we need to, in our basic approach to life, get our hearts and minds centered on the things that are above. We need to have our minds renewed. We need to be thinking biblical things, thinking with the mind of Christ himself, and then acting and, and, and doing and living in obedience to that so that we can experience the peaceful presence of God in our lives. That's our basic approach to life. Maybe you need a reset. Maybe God's saying to you, you've been dwelling on immoral things or destructive things or hurtful things, or, or you've been dwelling on worry, or you've been dwelling on lust and greed and power. Maybe you need to confess that to the Lord and get into God's word and start thinking right. Secondly, we may need a reset of our main focus in life. Our main focus in life. And this focus has something we're to focus on and something we're not to focus on. First of all, we gotta keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We're running a race and we need to have our eyes focused, not distracted. Hebrews 12, one and two. Uh, gives us this clarity. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's get in this race, the race of life, fixing our eyes on 
Jesus. Not on Sean. Not on anything else, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He came, he accomplished his mission on the cross, he was raised from the dead, then he ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming back for his children. And we're to keep our eyes on Jesus. The Father exalted the name Jesus, his name, and gave him a name above every name. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. God the Father uh, and God the Holy Spirit want us to understand and see Jesus because he is the one who lived out in human flesh the reality of what God expects for us as his followers. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, there were the disciples who traveled with Jesus for over three years. They watched him, they, they, they saw the miracles, they heard the messages. These, these lives were deeply impacted. The apostle John, who was very close to Jesus, was one of those 12, decades later as he wrote the Gospel of John, he would open up this book by talking about the Word, which was a philosophical statement about the one that is reality, and he would say the Word, God the Son, Jesus, was there at creation as God the Son, he is the creator of the universe. And then he would say, that one, the word, came and lived among us. And he said, we got to see him. We got to look at his life. And if it had been me, I probably would have concluded, wow, those miracles were great. Oh, those messages, that sermon on the mount, wish you could have heard it from his own lips. But look what John says when he concludes what he saw about Jesus that reflected the Father to him in his life. Look at John 1.14. The word, that is that philosophical statement for the essence, the reality of what everything is about. The word, Jesus, God the Son, Jesus Christ became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we saw God in human flesh, in Jesus, And what impressed us was this one who was full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's not grace or truth. That's very important. He's not grace or truth. He is grace and truth. See, in the ancient world, even in the time of the Greco-Roman mythological gods, They believed that they needed a number of gods because there would be gods of grace and compassion and love and there would be gods of truth and justice and integrity and righteousness and holiness and wrath. But they believed you had to have different gods because no god could have both grace and truth incorporated into them in one essence and one being. But John says, oh yeah, we saw that in Jesus. You see, our eyes, our focus the writer of the Hebrews says we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Our lives are to be focused on him. It's to be all about Jesus. There are a lot of things we can get our eyes on in this world, a lot of things that can distract us, a lot of things that can be important. But in the end, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, you know what they need the message of our life to be? It's not a political message, it's not a social message, it's, not, it's a message that they see Jesus in us in every possible way. Which means then, if we're gonna become like Jesus, we have to reflect who Jesus was, even as he reflected 
God in his life. John says that means we're going to have to look at what grace is. This word grace, again, was a philosophical word of the day, and it had the idea of compassion, love, kindness, forgiveness, grace. And some people look at Jesus, and that's all they see, and, and Satan loves it because he, if we see Jesus full of grace and truth, and again, this is not a compromise of grace and truth, he is the harmony of grace and truth, but Satan loves it when some people just focus on his grace. But then there's this other aspect, this is truth. When John says full of grace and truth, the grammar that's used there is the idea that you could say truth and grace or grace and truth. He is grace and truth. He is not grace or truth. And some Christians get so caught up in the truth side. You see, the truth is, is his integrity, his morality, his righteousness, his moral justice, his holiness, his wrath. And some folks get so caught up in this and drift into legalism because it's all about truth and there's no love or grace. Satan loves that. Because then we don't see Jesus for who he is in the harmony, not the compromise, but the harmony, the two strings of grace and truth being strummed together at the same time. And Satan loves it when Christians, certain Christians are all about grace and love and, and it doesn't matter how you live or what you do because God loves you and nothing matters in that way because God is love and forgiving and grace. The danger is when we so emphasize grace to the detriment of truth, it's not Jesus anymore. Or when we so emphasize truth to the detriment of grace, it's not Jesus anymore. Jesus is the living embodiment of grace and truth. And we need to get our eyes on that Jesus. And all of us have, from our political views or our experience in life or even our church backgrounds, maybe we're raised in a legalistic setting and so we're running toward grace or maybe we were raised in a, in a more open and broad setting and, and we think there needs to be more truth and we're running toward truth, but we need to run toward Jesus and get our eyes on Jesus. He needs to be the main focus of our lives. Maybe you're here and you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you to see Jesus for who he is? God sent him to be your savior. He accomplished what he accomplished on the cross. He conquered the grave for you so that you might be forgiven, not because you can earn it or make your way to God. No, Jesus came and did everything you need to be restored from the sin that entered into the world through Adam and Eve. Perhaps you've joined us online and today you want to put your faith in Christ, just tell God, I get it, I'm a sinner, I put my faith in Jesus. And the moment you do that, he welcomes you into his family with open arms by his grace as you respond to his truth, and you are his child. We would love to celebrate with you that today you came to Jesus. Just text the name Jesus, just the name Jesus in the message to the number below me on the screen, and we'll follow up with you, share some resources to help you grow, have someone on our team reach out to you. That's a great way for you who've joined us online to, to let us know you accepted Jesus today or recently or to ask us questions. Just text the name Jesus and we'll answer those questions about what it means to know him. If you're in the room, you can also text the name Jesus to that number or you could greet me out on the patio after the service. I'll be on the main patio by the sliding glass doors and we can make sure you know through the word of God that you know Jesus as your savior. Text 
us, reach out to us, email us, call us, talk to a Christian friend, but make sure you know Jesus. And child of God, keep your focus, keep your eyes on Jesus. Not some version of Jesus, but on Jesus. And secondly, if we're going to make sure we have our main focus correct, there may be a need for us to reset our lives in terms of idols. We've got to keep our hearts free of idols. We hear the word idol and we think of either ancient world or some isolated group today where they're bowing down to a wooden or stone statue and worshiping what that represents. And the Old Testament talks about how we need to get rid of those kind of idols and not have any other gods before God. But in the New Testament, it talks about how we can have idols of the heart. It's interesting that often when idols are brought up in the New Testament, it starts with who Jesus is and who we are and our eyes on Jesus, and then it warns us about idols because the idols that get into our hearts distract us from Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Look at this beautiful statement about Jesus. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. There's that thinking again. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes again, then you also will appear with him in glory. Look at the beauty of having our eyes on Jesus, even anticipating his soon return. But notice, after he talks about getting our eyes on Jesus, he says, and you got to get rid of the idols of your heart. Look at verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And these are those obvious ones, you know, the things that have to do with lust and greed and pride. We've got to get those things out of our lives because those things get in the way of Jesus being at the center of our lives. Those things become idols. John does the same thing. He talks about Jesus and our understanding of Jesus and then warns us about idols. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we read, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Get your eyes on Jesus, John says. And then what does he do? He worries that we're going to have idols in our heart that are going to, that are going to displace Jesus from having the focal point. And so he says in verse 21, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is in the New International Version, which I usually preach from. The New Living Translation has this verse this way, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. What is an idol? Anything that takes God's place in your heart. It's easy to have idols. Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, addresses idols and how we can have idols in our lives today. He asks the question, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. He goes on to say, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. In the introduction of the book, he talks about our hearts being idol factories. We just keep making idols. He even talks about how there is no such thing as atheism. Even if you reject God, you put something else in the place of worship and focus in your life. The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns it into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. 
if we attain them. Even good things, if they're given that priority of being the ultimate thing in our lives, can become idols, even the blessings. If you uproot an idol in your life and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, Keller writes, the idol will grow back. See, if you get rid of the idol of your heart, but you don't get your eyes on Jesus, the idol will come back. When you uproot and get rid of the idol in your life, then you got to get your eyes on Jesus. And again, there are idols that seem obvious to us, the things of lust and greed and pride that are in our hearts. Those seem to be obvious idols where things that, are, uh, uh, that we sexualize or that we, we want out of materialism or there's this power or position or control we want. That, that seems so obvious. But then there are the good things that take priority over Jesus in our lives, the good blessings he's given us that become idols that we need to get out of our hearts and lives. Then there are things that are very subtle. There even is ideological idolatry. And Satan loves it when he can, again, get us off in one side or the other. If, if we see Jesus only as truth or only as grace. You know, so politically, those who lean more toward truth, it's all about personal morality. It's all about what is right or wrong sexually or the sanctity of life. And then for those politically who maybe lean more toward the grace and love of Jesus, and, and it, for them it's all about racial equality and justice. It's all about uh, issues of, of sexuality and, and just embracing everything anybody ever does. Both draw us away from Jesus. And there's great danger there because what happens is we begin to listen to the voices of the world telling us this is the most important thing and then what we get known for is this thing or this political position or we get known for this thing and this political position and we're no longer focused on Jesus and the world isn't seeing Jesus, it's seeing uh, political posturing and ideological ideas that have become our idols. And in the last year I think this has happened so much so that we've allowed political voices on the right and the left to come from maybe the grace side or the truth side of life and of the world, and we've allowed those voices to tell us who Jesus is and who we should be as Christians. And there's some truth in it because it reflects the grace of Christ or the truth of Christ, the morality of Christ or the justice of Christ, but what's missing is for us to find Christ in Scripture, the Jesus of the Bible, not what everybody else is telling us. We've taken vaccines and masks and lockdowns and, and we've pulled them to the grace side or the truth side and, and we've made them idols, both sides. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop letting the world define Jesus in scripture and start as Christians, letting them see Jesus, the biblical Jesus, and how he then, he says, yes, racial justice is important and near and dear to my heart, but so is the sanctity of life. It's wrong to say that we've got to choose one side or the other. We need to be focused on Christ and what he says and who he is in grace and truth. And that means we will fight for racial justice. And some people will say, oh, social justice, that's just liberalism, baloney. That means we will stand for the sanctity of life from conception forward. And some people will say, oh, that's just conservative right-wing baloney. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And you say, well, then, 
then it's, this is more important than that is more important. Baloney. Don't let the world around us define our Jesus. He is revealed in the word of God. And when we allow the world around us to define our Jesus, we're guilty of ideological idolatry. Because that perspective has taken the place of Christ in our hearts. And that's dangerous. You know what Satan says? Yeah, she's so pro-life. He's so for racial justice. He can't see anything else. She can't see anything else. And they're not talking about Jesus anymore. They're talking about why that party's bad and this party's good. It's all about that. And people don't see Jesus anymore. Oh, they need to see Jesus in us. Our teaching pastor, Pastor Brian Howard, uh, shares a little bit about that in his own journey in this video. Watch this video. Hey, Calvary family. My name is Brian Howard, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Calvary. In my role, I get to teach in a bunch of different environments and, and preach the Bible and proclaim the gospel, as well as oversee our middle school ministry, our high school ministry, our young adult ministry, and our digital communications efforts. You know, I first came to Calvary in the fall of 2007 when I was leading a small group um, when I was in college uh, with my friend Drew Walton. We'd drive up from Los Angeles to lead a small group in our high school ministry here. And then in the summer of 2010, got offered an internship here at Calvary to work in our high school ministry. I came on staff in June of 2010 and was excited to be working in ministry, but wasn't so certain that I'd be staying here at Calvary. I think what happened was I'd grown up in a real small church and I'd always viewed big mega churches like Calvary as just being too into performance or, or numbers or, or, or not really into the Bible or not really serious about discipleship in Jesus. And so I came in with those prejudices toward a, a mega church. And then what happened, it, immediately as I came on staff and started to meet people who worked here or meet the people who, who made up Calvary was I was immediately humbled by the fact that there were people who loved Jesus more than I did. There were people who served with humility and with fervor that I, I had never had. And most importantly to me, there were people who knew the Bible and taught it far better than I ever had. And so I think immediately I was humbled to realize that whatever prejudices I had had uh, about what a mega church was, that wasn't true of Calvary. That wasn't my experience of this church. And so I've stayed on staff here now for 11 years, working in our student ministries primarily, helping make disciples of young people and pointing them toward Jesus. And it's been an absolute joy and a privilege to be a part of the staff of this church. It was that same summer in June of 2010 when I came on staff that ended up meeting a woman named Danielle German. And, and we got to know each other that summer and started dating. And two years later, we were engaged. And three years later, in, in March of 2013, we were married. And so we've been married now for eight years. And we just love being a part of this church as a family. Uh, we've had two kids since then, our, our daughter, Grace, who's three years old, and, and our son, Noah, who's one years old. You know, one of the things I've always loved about Calvary uh, is that Calvary is a church that's serious about the Word of God. And, and so it's a church that really holds the Word of God as the final and supreme authority. You see, what can quickly happen is you can take a good thing, like a political party, 
or, or concerns about justice or concerns about discrimination or concerns uh, about COVID or concerns about the, how the world is functioning, about the economy, about immigration, any issue. And you can take that issue and make it the ultimate thing in your life. But when Christians make the ultimate thing in their life anything other than God, that is when we slip into what the Bible calls idolatry. And there is a kind of ideological idolatry that holds up the ideas and the systems and the patterns of this world, something we're passionate about over the Word of God. And I think our great passion here at Calvary, our great hope is that we would be a people who critique the systems of the world through the word of God, rather than allowing the systems of the world to critique God's word. And I think getting those two things inverted has caused a lot of pain, has caused a lot of division, where what we do is we fight for the idea or the ideology we want, rather than humbling ourselves, coming to the word of God and allowing the word of God to critique even our closest held beliefs, ideas, patterns, and worldviews. You know, we're a church that has always been serious about the Word of God, and so we've built up groups, whether it's small groups or Bible studies or, or classes you can be involved with. Those happen here on campus or those happen online. There's opportunities for you to lean in to know the Word of God better, because when you know the Word of God better, you're able to use the Word of God to critique the systems of the world rather than the other way around. And so there are so many great opportunities for adults, for students, for children, for all of us to be involved. There's resources online and here on campus to help you know your Bible so that you can be what Romans 12 calls us to be when it says to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I want to invite you as we emerge into a post-COVID world to commit to at least two things. The first is that you would commit to being a person who reads your Bible on your own, that you would open up the Bible on a daily basis at your home, that you would be someone who reads the Bible, not just for information about God, but you would be someone who reads the Bible to have intimacy with God, to understand the depth of his love for you and to interact with the Holy Spirit through the word of God that we find in the Bible. And then the second thing I want to invite you toward is to lean in with a group here that studies the Bible. Well, one of the things we need to be aware of is that when I read the Bible on my own and when you read the Bible on your own, there are blind spots and there are biases and there are things you don't tend to see in the text. But when we get together in a group of people who are all studying it together, that allows us to become better. It allows us to become more like Jesus. As Proverbs 27, 17 says, it says so as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that's what happens when we get into a group and study the Bible together. We become people people who sharpen one another in our understanding of the Word of God. Listen, right now we, we live in an age that wants to exalt every idea or pattern or ideology or, or politician or platform or political idea as the ultimate thing in your life. And as believers, that can never be the case. We must always commit to being a people who say that whatever things we may agree with or like or disagree with or not like in this world, our ultimate authority is the Word of God. It's what God has to say. And Calvary, may we always be a church in the midst of all the competing claims in this world who stand firm upon the Word of God. Too many of us as Christians and pastors and churches have allowed the voices of our polarized culture to define how we're supposed to be 
rather than letting the scriptures define us. We've got, on the one side, Christian nationalism that, that exalts patriotism to a place it shouldn't be. I'm a very patriotic person. I'm thankful for my grandfather, my father, and my brother who've served in the military. As I mentioned those two guys earlier, I was so moved to see those flags handed to those individuals. But there's a danger when we blur Christianity and patriotism to the point that, that they are one and the same. There's a Bible coming out that's being produced that's going to have the Bible and the Constitution together, and that's a, that's a dangerous thing. The, the Constitution, I think, is perhaps the best man-made document ever in history. What a blessing. But to put it on par with the Scriptures is a dangerous, dangerous thing, and it, it takes a nationalism in the name of Christ to a level that is ideological idolatry. But on the other side, there's this, this voice of Christian progressivism that says, oh, it's just all love. We should never define anything as right or wrong, never define anything in any other way than just love, love, love. And there's a danger there. And we've got these that are not just in the secular world, but Christian voices shouting at us, and we've got to get back to letting the Word of God. Amen. Word of God. Define who we are and what we believe and what we stand for, and it won't make sense in the political divide. But the world is hungry to see Jesus, and we need to let them see Jesus, not our idols. So how do we know if we've got idols? Let me give you four questions that are in the take note. I'm going to go through these quickly, but you can look at these this week on your own to ask yourself, do I have any idols? Am I being controlled by lust, power, and greed instead of being shaped by the love, humility, and generosity of Jesus? Those are those idols that Paul talked about in Colossians 3.6. Secondly, is there anything or anyone that has the first, highest, or most important place in my life rather than Jesus? It could be something good, something special, a blessing. But is there anything or anyone who's gotten in that place? We need to put that in its proper place and put Jesus on the throne of our hearts. The third question, is there anything or anyone that I look to for satisfaction, meaning, or identity in my life more than Jesus? If so... If so, then I need to put that in its proper place, and I need to find my satisfaction, meaning, and identity in Jesus. The fourth and final question is, is there any good thing in my life that has become an ultimate thing in my life? That's an idol. Uh, a final test is just to think about what you're known for. Do your neighbors know you as a follower of Christ, as, as a Jesus follower, or do they know you by some ideological political bent that you've mixed in with your Christianity, either on the right or the left, we need to be known for the follow, being the followers of Jesus. And if you're known for anything else, they see that as first and foremost in your life, then you've got some idols. It could be even something good. But what we need to be known for by those who know us well is that we love Jesus and we're seeking to be like him and to live in love like him wherever we go. I just want to ask you to consider a challenge Brian talked about how we need to be in God's Word and interact with the Holy Spirit and let God speak to us. I want to challenge you to take the book of John. We've talked about John a few times today, the Apostle John. In his Gospel of John, there are 21 chapters. Take a three-week challenge and read one chapter of John each day starting today and see Jesus for who he is in truth and grace as John reveals him, as the Spirit of God uses John to reveal Jesus. Just take the book of John, one chapter a day, for 21 days and see Jesus afresh in your life. Not who you think he is, not who some political party tells you to think he is, but who Jesus is as he lived and loved, revealed in scripture. Get a fresh glimpse of Jesus. 
Let me just ask you, are you approaching your post-COVID life with Christ at the center of everything? In how you approach life, are you thinking right, doing right, so God can give you that proper feeling of peace and satisfaction? Are you focusing on the main thing? Have you got your eyes on Jesus and are you keeping your heart free of idols? Let's do a reset, a gut check, and make sure that our eyes are firmly on Jesus, not all the noise of this world. Oh, the people around us, they don't need us to get better at political arguments. They need, to get, they need to see us getting better at following Jesus and living and loving like Jesus wherever we go. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for the example of Christ in our lives. Be glorified in us. Lord, we know that there's an overlap from these political voices into what your scriptures say, but we also know that those things get pulled apart. Help us to see Jesus afresh. I pray many would just open the book of John, read a chapter a day for the next 21 days and just see Jesus. Just see Jesus. See him in his grace and in his truth. And then may we become like Jesus so people see the grace and truth of Jesus in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.